So I took all the guardrails off and let the language be what kids spoke, uh, let the racism just sort of be what it was. And, you know, the way that we would normally uh, sort of construct a book like that now, it would be almost uh, neutered of all of this. Do you like books? I'm outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. Reread it. Sometimes I'd write something. What are you writing? Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern, and this is Bookable. On today's show, we're going home again. We are all products of our environment. Who we are and who we become in the world is shaped by the place we were raised. Because when you're smaller, the neighborhood you live in is your whole world. Well, um, I'm all right. (laughs) Well, our guest today graduated from fireworks shows to nightly street parties. Explores that childhood experience with authenticity, nuance, and humor. Okay, okay. I'm good to go then. Time for an introduction. I'm Sean Stewart Ruff, author of Finlater. Sean Stewart Ruff. Finlater is his debut novel, first published in 2008. While it is fiction, the book draws closely from Sean's personal experiences growing up as a black boy in the 1970s. It covers so much ground, exploring overt racism, interracial friendships, changing demographics, sexual orientation, and first loves. I think it's fair to say that it's it's an attempt to capture the character of my childhood. The story is so deeply rooted in location you could practically call it a main character. Well, the setting is in a housing project in eastern Cincinnati called Finlater. Finlater began as a WPA project created by President Roosevelt for poor white people. By Sean's childhood, those demographics changed considerably, bringing in more and more Black families. You know, despite, let's say, the grumblings of especially the white people living in this housing complex, the children, of course, all got along wonderfully. I mean, we had friends that we raced to school with and hung out with, and they were white kids living in the neighborhood, and they were just as poor as we were. That fellowship didn't last long. There's a a kind of violence, barely controlled, uh, as this novel begins. It escalates in uh, tension in all kinds of ways, and in fact, every way. So part of the reason why I chose, you know, this particular period uh, in my life, because it represents something that I really kind of think about this country, uh, that it's a terribly violent country um, in all kinds of ways. So those were the stakes for me, you know, how to sort of get into that, um, that theme of uh, conflict, tension, and violence. From Finlater, page 24. It was mostly moms and their kids in Finlater. Dads were in short supply and seasonal like the holidays. Having a man around carried weight and earned respect. Nice white women like Mrs. Cavanaugh congratulated mom on dad in wordless ways, a sponge cake or a tin of cookies arriving for no good reason. Cliffy Douglas lives in Finlater with his family. Can you tell us a bit about who Cliffy Douglas is? 
Well, he is an eighth grader uh, who has been bumped up a grade after having been discovered by a new administrator at the school who sort of basically plucks Cliffy out of um, a dance class uh, where the black kids were basically proud. So he is 13 going on 14 in this novel. He comes from a family of a mother and two brothers at that point. Uh, So the novel begins uh, with the introduction of the fifth person. So there are five principles in this story. The fifth person is basically a no-account kind of dad, uh, the no-show dad, the deadbeat dad. And he has basically sort of come into town, swooped into town uh, for lots of reasons that have little to nothing to do with the children and the wife he left behind, um, basically money. I mean, that's the reason he comes to town. And so he disrupts uh, what was, I think, a pretty uh, well-adjusted and happy childhood for all the boys, uh, for Dudley, Corey, and Cliffy. So Cliffy isn't just the only one who has this sort of standout experience, you know, with this uh, invasion, because that's what uh, he thinks of it is. And as, not in the very beginning, I mean, that's what it, you know, ultimately begins to feel like, that they have been invaded, taken over uh, by, you know, this force that none of them have any power over, um, including their mother. Uh, who is not at all shy to let everybody know just how much she loves this man. She's only loved him. And, you know, the children have never seen her like this. Cliffy has never seen his mother like this. There is a man in the background. Uh, You never meet him in the novel, but Cliffy references him because this man is the kind of man that Cliffy thinks Uh, would have been a great father because he was caring and loving and he had money and he meant well. He meant to sort of see the boys through. I mean, that was how he kind of viewed his relationship with this much, much younger woman. He was an older man. Um, So there's a bit of betrayal that's uh, sort of laid out early on in this novel that Cliffy doesn't really quite understand until he gets to know uh, this person who is his father. From Finlater, page 143. Dad greeted us with the news that Mom was working extra. He usually never bothered to tell us what instructions she gave him for us. He'd been on his way for a snack, and we just happened to be there. He was in his usual getup of tight bikini underwear that scrunched his privates into a tomato-like ball. The imitation silk tank top, red in this case, mashed his nipples. The boys refer to their dad as Bikini Dad, Mm. which is funny, but it's also not so funny. It was a very... He's very unsettling in a lot of ways. Can you talk a bit about why they call him Bikini Dad and what what he does in the house, how he lounges around, and what his how how he takes up space in the house? Um, yes, um, he kind of dominates the space. He basically turns the boys into servants. Uh, he runs around in bikini underwear or underwear and t shirt. Sometimes no t shirt. Um, he has clearly no you know idea about. Uh, raising children or anything. There's at one point, um, um, uh, I think, a, uh, I, I kind of 
gloss over this description, but it was, it's of the father going out to play uh, with the boys. And he went out in platform shoes. Uh, and, you know, they're like playing toss or something. And the father runs a couple of times and is like, fuck this. And, you know, he goes <laughs> back into the house immediately. But so he has no connection uh, to uh, the boys as boys um, mm-hmm. uh, or fathering boys or fathering any kind of child. I mean, he's just a kind of a child. I mean, I think that, you know, the German white lady calls him a man child and that's exactly mm-hmm. what he is. Uh, so in the story, he um, really uh, sort of provokes the boys. Uh, the younger boy is, uh, you know, just so in love uh, with his dad, the dad that is promising to take him to amusement parks and all this, that he does not care that he's been turned into a fetch it boy. Mm-hmm. Um, Cliffy is very suspicious of this. Um, and the other boy is obviously, you know, just really worked up over it, uh, but almost um, incapable of resisting uh, early on, because in a way, they're all trying to make their mother happy. You know, their mother, their big sister uh, slash mother, uh, you know, they want her to be happy. She tells them that uh, she's tired of uh, carrying the weight of all this on her shoulders. She needs their father specifically uh, to help raise them, to turn them into good young men. Uh, but, you know, she has clearly, you know, fooled herself into thinking that's possible with such a man uh, because he is the opposite of what, um, you know, a good father is. I mean, clearly, Cliffy has a fantasy that he's projecting about his own father. Um, and it isn't the person who showed up. It's definitely not Bikini Dad. <laughs> It's a completely different kind of man, a noble man, a man like the man who, you know, uh, the mother was seeing before the father showed up. Time for a short break. When we come back, Sean reveals the inspiration that gave Finlater its edge. And Cliffy Douglas finds love when he meets Noah. Stick around. Welcome back to Bookable. I'm Amanda Stern here with Sean Stewart Ruff, author of Finlater. Most coming-of-age stories include first love, and Finlater is no exception. Cliffy falls hard for his, despite it being taboo at the time. This story um, is a gay story, uh, largely because I felt that gay people would embody uh, everything uh, to make this story come to life in a really, really big way. And the characters themselves not only had to be gay, but um, they had to be different from each other, fascinated with each other, um, and ultimately fall in love with each other. Uh, So that's where Noah comes from. Uh, He comes from um, a similar kind of outsider experience. Um, and the difference, I think, between the two of them is that Noah is unafraid to proclaim 
who he is. He insists upon letting people know that he's Jewish and that he does not celebrate Christmas and a whole lot of things. He's a very opinionated boy. And Cliffy is this kind of, you know, very, very smart, but a very shrinking kind of person. He's a middle child used to negotiating, um, you know, complicated family dynamics as middle children do. Um, So he doesn't really um, have uh, that sense of standing up uh, the way that Noah does. So you can imagine the instant attraction between the two of them. Uh, uh, Cliffy's a, a bit in awe. And I think, you know, Noah sees something similar in Cliffy in the sense that, you know, the boy uh, Cliffy uh, obviously has been put down. Noah first learns about Cliffy when Cliffy has been plucked out of the dunce class. Uh, so it would only make sense then that he would understand that they shared something. Mm-hmm. When they meet, um, they meet because they're both wearing the same shirt, mm-hmm. um, which is so perfect. I mean, that's, ex- that's exactly how 13-year-old people bond, <laughs> you know, over this this shared superficialities. Um, and they... You know, there's there's more to it though. Noah's father owns a, a clothing store, and so he's Cliffy. Perhaps bought his shirt there, but Noah immediately calls Cliffy his soul brother. Mm-hmm. Where was he getting that term from? And I wondered whether he was sort of fetishizing Cliffy's blackness. Yeah, yeah. I, in a way, I think so. You know, there's a handshake moment where Cliffy sort of is expected to know something, you know, some kind of cool, mm-hmm. coded black guy handshake. And he's a little confused mm-hmm. by that. Um, no, no, you're totally right. I mean, I think that's that sort of is the, um, uh, if you will, the flirtation. Uh, uh, and of course, Cliffy doesn't really understand what, what's happening at that point. But that is the the initial flirtation, you know, this sense that we belong together, you know, we are brothers, uh, whatever that means, soul brothers, I mean, whatever that means, you know, black guys use, well, back then, uh, we would say that, uh, you know, um, well, I didn't say it. um, And I don't think my brothers did either. But you know, this would be, um, you know, a phrase that you would hear in movies and so on. So, um, you know, I think Noah, uh, in lots of ways, was was very enamored of black culture. And you learn uh, later uh, in the story uh, that Noah's father uh, was as well. He has this store that you mentioned, and um, the people shopping there are black, mostly. Um, So it's a very, you know, sort of catered uh, type of clothing uh, in this store to a certain type of man looking for a certain type of style. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's also um, this place where musicians uh, pop in and the father, Noah's father, that is, was a musician before his injuries in Vietnam. And uh, so he loves these people and talks music with them and has this really strong bond with people um, uh, from the area, which is the reason he holds on to the story. The store has no significance otherwise, because it obviously isn't profitable. I mean, you learn that as well. So there's a, I think, I wouldn't say that um, Cliffy is an object of fetish. 
I just think there's the Noah has a romance in his mind uh, that he can have a black friend like his father had so many black friends. And Noah met many of these uh, black people who would come into the store in summer when he worked there with his father. So there's a there's a kind of history there that um, I think Noah feels himself very much a part of. So it isn't really uh, for him, I think, a fetish. A fetishizing, I think for us as reader, it may come off that mm-hmm. way. But of course, you know, we're also reading that book by today's standards, uh, which, you know, arguably is a bit unfair. From Finlater, page 77. Fuck dang, Noah spat. He swerved the bike sharply and we nearly capsized. What's happening? I shouted into his back. Nothing, just a wrong turn. Then I heard. Look, the Jew boy got his spook with him, too. One of the posse called out something to the others. Just then, the four of them broke away from the group and pursued us on foot. A Coke bottle whizzed by us and shattered against a parked car. Fuck you, Noah screamed. I saw Larry Clark's uh, Kids, you know, that film that he made with Harmony Korn. And um, I, I, I just totally understood my story after watching that film. Uh, or my story as in my novel, not my, you know, my personal story, but as in like what my novel, where my novel would go. So I took all the guardrails off and let the language be what kids spoke, uh, let the racism just sort of be what it was. Um, as was the case in those times, it was nothing to hear your friend's parents say, uh, you know, I don't want that nigger in this house, you know, that kind of thing. Um, this is the kind of experience that uh, we kids uh, uh, had uh, in, you know, these in this housing project. So, you know, it just I just took it off um, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, rather I let it speak for itself. And, you know, the way that we would normally uh, sort of construct a book like that now, uh, it would be almost uh, neutered of all of this. And uh, that uh, just was not possible. And again, this is why I struggled to figure out how to write this book. And I saw that film and I thought, that's how to write this book. You know, take the guardrails off, just let it go uh, and let it go where it needs to go. You know, this is not part of the, I didn't add this into the interview questions, but I do. I'm very curious. Do you, what were you afraid of when you were writing this? Well, I, you know, I always feel just a little uh, sort of squeamish um, and cringe a bit when I read a uh, very, very personal uh, type of writing that is about, you know, parents alive, siblings alive, you know, lovers alive or something like that. Uh, it just makes me feel a little uncomfortable. I mean, I'm, you know, thrilled for the writers who can do that. I'm just simply saying that for me, uh, that's really um, sort of an impossible um, you know, um, task to take on. Uh, so I think, you know, my tendencies are more toward uh, obscuring, you know, the, the, the things which are definitely me. Um, and uh, only I know those things. Uh, and the rest is behind the wall of fiction. So um, my, I think, you know, these books or this book, well, I've just written a follow-up to uh, Finn later, so after all these years, 
So I want to say that these books have liberated me a little bit in that regard. I mean, they're still, I consider to be very much fiction, but uh, they mm-hmm. stray, you know, uh, and rely heavily upon my own life. Um, uh, again, in character, less, you know, sort of chronological events and, you know, the rest, but um, mm-hmm. most definitely character. Sean Stewart Ruff, author of Finlater. It's published by Quote Editions and is celebrating its 12th anniversary this year. And did you catch that little tease buried in his last answer? That's right. Sean is working on a follow-up to Finlater, and we cannot wait to read it. Bookable is a production of Loud Tree Media. I'm your host, Amanda Stern, five feet tall and still making short jokes. We're produced by me, Bo Friedlander and Andrew Dunn, who also mixed and sound designed the show. Bo is Loudtree's editor-in-chief. Find us on the web at bookablepod.com, and please subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. That's one of the best ways for other listeners to find Bookable. And since Sean is writing a follow-up about Cliffy and Noah, it was probably a good thing we had this chat to refresh his memory because there were a few details I had to remind him of. Is that two or three or four? I'm confused here. Four. It's a, a fifth. fourth. It's a fifth. Because That's right. It's... Sorry. Thank you for correcting me. That's okay. <laughs> I don't count very well. <laughs> I just read it. You wrote this. Well, you wrote this a very long time ago. I just finished it. So. Well, honestly, I had to reread um, it too because I don't really remember it. I, you know, written so much uh, since then. This is bookable. 